Okay, time to get honest here. You ready? When you're a teenager, did you ever have a plan that you thought later in life, that just was not the best plan? Like maybe that idea was just not the best. Anyone? No, am I the only one that made like some reckless plans in, as a teenager? Come on, let's just be real. We've all been there, right? We've all decided, hey, this is a great idea. I'm going to do this. And then you think several years later, like, what was I thinking? Well, I had one of those. My freshman year in high school, there was a river behind the dorm where I lived in. So I went to school in Tokyo at a Christian school there. And behind the dorm was a, a river. It was more like a creek. Okay, it was maybe a little bit more like a, a glorified drainage ditch. Okay, it was really more just like an open sewer, okay? It, <laughs> A creek is being generous. But I had it in my head because I heard this guy, legend apparently, had gotten a little rubber dinghy and he had floated down this little creek all the way down into the Bay of Tokyo. I'm like, wow, that sounds like a great plan. I want to do that. He just floated all the way down and found a train station, deflated his raft and took a train back home. I'm going to do that. And so I made a plan, found a map. Bicycle down this thing, explored the whole river. Then finally one day, I got my little rubber dinghy, got in the creek, open sewer, started floating down this thing a little bit. Of course, the onlookers from the side were like, what is this crazy foreigner doing, you know, floating down our sewer? And uh, <laughs> I'm floating down this thing, and I get maybe, maybe 100 to 200 yards down this thing. And it like snags on a piece of metal. Probably an old bicycle that someone threw in the creek, okay? And there's a hole in the raft. And soon I'm taking on water and I'm not getting very far. I'm like, I've got to do this. I'm going to float down to Tokyo Bay. Come on. And the water's getting here, I'm trying to get the water out. I'm like, I'm going to do this. And soon enough, the raft just sank, okay? This raft was made to float, it was made to go somewhere. The water did not belong in the raft. And this is like real top notch science here, right? Buoyancy and all this kind of stuff. A boat is meant to float. A boat is meant to go into the ocean and go somewhere. It's designed to do this. It's meant to go in the water. The ship is meant to go in the ocean, but the ocean is not meant to be in the boat. Thank you. It's been great. It's great. I'll see you guys later. All right. Now, now seriously, though, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. A ship is meant to go in the ocean, but the ocean is not meant to be in the boat. Now, I want you to have this imagery in your mind as we took Take the scripture today as you look at what God has to say about what it means for us as believers, as Christ followers, to be in the world, but not of it. We've heard this phrase. Maybe you've heard this phrase growing up so much. Hey, listen, don't be in the world. You, gotta, you, know, you have to be in the world, but you can't be of it. Like, this seems a little confusing. There's a, there's a tension there. There's this balance there. Like, how do I be in the world, but not of it? being in the location, but not being absorbed by what it has to offer. This is not an easy thing, but God has called and prepared every believer to be in the world, but not of it. He's prepared us for this. He's called us to this way of thinking and living. Because here's the thing, Jesus has a rescue mission for us. He has a rescue mission for us, but it requires us to make camp in occupied territory. That's the challenge. He has a mission for us, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a challenge. Now, it's, it's no easy thing to truly align ourselves with this mindset, with this attitude of being in the world, but not of it. 
it's not a simple thing. In fact, right now in my mind, I'm starting to get that Lord of the Rings meme with Boromir. And some of you guys know what I'm talking about. You see it on social media. One does not simply, right? One does not simply live in the world but not be of it. One does not simply go into, the, into Mordor thinking you're not going to be influenced by it. One does not simply do this. This is a challenge. This is difficult. This conundrum is also ancient. All right? The Jewish people face the same problem. When Joshua conquered the land of Canaan, they conquered all the major city-states and major points of power for the most part, but there's still Canaanites living in the land. And so their influence prevailed. The Israelites tried to preserve and do what was right, but not very well, because they were inundated by the culture around them, by the idolatry surrounding them, by the culture that they were surrounded by. And so we see this cycle in the book of Judges where they would fall into sin, and then God would allow them to be oppressed as part of their judgment. And then they'd cry out to God and say, God, we need you. We know what we've done is wrong. And then he would rescue them by giving them a deliverer, a judge, someone to rescue them. And then they experience peace. And then they'd fall back into sin. And around and around and around they went because they were surrounded by culture that was completely against God. And they did not have the will to resist it. Now, in Jesus' day, they had the same problem as well. The Roman Empire was oppressing the Jewish people, putting enormous amount of pressure to be conformed to the way of doing things. Hellenization was a serious deal. The Greek way of doing things was the best way of doing things, according to the Romans. And so this was imposed upon the Jewish people. And so we saw four different kind of factions or groups kind of emerge to try and wrestle with this idea of how do we maintain the faithfulness that God wants for us to preserve what he has for us as well. How do we do this in a culture that's totally against you, that is pushing against this? And so you have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ruling class of the Jewish people. They were the ones that had the wealth. They were the ones that had the power. They were the ones that ran the temple. But they were also tremendous, like, compromisers. They compromised what God had for them. They compromised the temple system. It became a money-making deal. In fact, that's why Jesus was so upset. It's a big deal. Imagine coming to church and we started charging tickets for you to come to the door. Imagine if we said, all right, you want to meet with one of those pastors? That's going to be 50 bucks. Plus, you know, if you're going to meet with Pastor West, it's going to be 50 bucks plus a boba tea. Okay, he loves boba tea, in case you're wondering. Now, if you meet with me, it's going to be a Coke from McDonald's, okay? Matt Downey's learned this secret a long time ago. If he wants me to do something last minute for him, he sheepishly hears a McDonald's Coke. But we jest... But this is what the Sadducees were doing, charging essentially access to God. It was horrific. They compromised to maintain their power. They became Hellenists. They adopted a lot of the Roman and Greek ways of doing things as well. Then you had the Pharisees. They were legalists. Their answer to a culture that was against God was like, essentially come with a, a series of their own rules, rabbinical teachings that say, if we come with enough rules to help us obey God's law in this context, then we'll be good. They had, Tons of rules, so many rules. It was ridiculous. The problem was, and this, they call this collection of rules or biblical teachings the Mishnah. The problem was they equated those teachings with God's law, and they judged everybody else by their rules instead of the principles found in Scripture. I mean, how many times have we found people, maybe this is you, we just find our faith by what we don't do. We have a list of things. And then we look at all the ways, things that we don't do, our own personal boundaries, and then instead of looking at God's Word to discern 
we're starting to judge other people. Hey, they don't follow the same boundaries I do. So the point of a boundary, right, is that when you break your own personal boundary, you're still within God's law. You're still within his rule. And different people's boundaries might be different. The zealots, they were terrorists, essentially using violence to try and bring about a nation of Israel, doing wicked things to try to get Israel into a place of power and independence again. Now, we may not see these kind of extreme forms today, but I think this kind of plays out in social media a lot. Trolls. People get on, and they might say something true or something right, but the way they're doing it is not thoughtful, it's not caring, it doesn't come from a place of love. Doing wrong things in the name of something right. Zealots. In fact, Jesus had two zealots as one of his disciples. In fact, the scripture passage we're going to read today in John chapter 17 was written by John, who was a zealot. God used him, transformed him, and used him for the gospel. And lastly, we have the Essenes. Now, the Essenes they essentially believed that the only way they could be faithful to God was to completely remove themselves from society. The only way we can be holy, the only way we can be sanctified is if we completely don't even interact with the, uh, the peoples. Ew. And the, the, something good came out of the Essenes. We had the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was kind of cool. You know, affirmed a lot of amazing, amazing things in scriptures. But they removed themselves. How many times is it so easy for us to say, you know what, I just feel so much more comfortable in the bubble? Have my, you know, these things aren't bad, right? I got my Christian movies. I got my Christian music. I got my Christian friends. I got my Christian everything. And all of a sudden, before you realize it, again, these things are good things. I think we need these things. I think we benefit from these things. They encourage us. They challenge us. They lift us up. But before you know it, sometimes you don't even have any friends or acquaintances that are not believers. We're not even thinking that way. It's a scary place to be. This is especially a big challenge for us as pastors because we work in the bubble. We work in the church. And so we have to be very intentional about reaching out and making these connections when we go to a restaurant or a store to really use the opportunity to make an impact for Christ. This is the challenge. How do we remain faithful followers of Christ when our cultural context is both our mission field and a minefield? How do we make a difference? How are we going to remain faithful in this context when it's both dangerous and challenging and hard, but God's called us to it? It's a good thing Jesus made sure to prepare us for this. He gave us his word. So that's what we're going to look at today. How did Jesus pray for his disciples on the eve of his death? So go ahead and open up your scripture. Your, your Bible to John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at John chapter 17, verses 11 through 22. You can open it up in your Bible app, or you can read it in an actual physical Bible. John chapter 17, verses 11 to 22. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of context here. So it's during the Passover meal. John records a, a series of instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. And uh, there's several chapters here. And so we think these are the final things that Jesus is saying to his disciples before he goes to his death. So you get several bits of instruction, and then he goes into this prayer. In verses 1 through 6, sorry, verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. He's preparing himself. He knows what's waiting for him, the difficulties. I mean, right after this prayer, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, 
where he sweats blood. Jesus knows what is waiting for him. And then in verses 6 through 10, he starts to pray for his disciples, recapping what he's been through with them. Now remember, Jesus is praying this as the disciples are listening to him. They are hearing him pray this. He is praying this for their benefit to hear because right after this, it's go time. So this is where we find ourselves because in verse 11, he starts to petition God, ask for specific things for his disciples. Now, yes, this prayer is specifically for the disciples, but it also applies to us today. And so we're going to look at that this morning in John chapter 17, verses 11. So let's read that. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, Jesus is talking about himself, but they are in the world talking about the disciples, and I am coming to you, knowing what, hey, he's about to die. He's going to rise to the dead. He's going to go to heaven. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, appeal to authority, so that you may be the one as we are one. And we see this, this theme of protection. If you look a little further down in verse 15, I am not praying that you may take them out of the world, that you protect them from the evil one. This repetition of praying for protection for his disciples. Jesus knew what was waiting for them. Every single one of his disciples would go on to die for their faith. Every single one, except for the apostle John, although by church tradition they tried to, and they were unsuccessful. They're like, nah, what do we do with this guy? Let's just stick him on the island of Patmos. Jesus knew what was waiting for them. And so he prays this for them. There's an important truth we need to understand. We are endangered. We are endangered in this world, but Jesus has protected us from its ruler. Now, I'm going to get to, there's a couple components here I want us to focus on. One, the literal Greek word here for protect actually means keep. Jesus is praying, keep them, keep them close. Now, when I hear this, I, you know, kind of history stuff I really kind of get into a little bit, I immediately thought about medieval castles. Look at a medieval castle, they'd have an outer wall, some of the more simple castles, and then the most fortified, the place of last defense, the safest place in the entire castle was called the keep. God wants to keep us safe. Now, when we talk about safety, what are we talking about? What kind of protection was Jesus offering or asking God for for his disciples and for us today? It can be physical protection, although we can pray for that and God grants that, I believe that, but the protection that God offers for us can't be physical because tell that to the martyr. People who die for their faith. We need to be prepared for that. Do we have a kind of faith that's willing to die for our faith? And that's a huge question. So what is this protection that he offers? And the protection he offers us is protection from the evil one, from Satan, from his lies, from his influence, and ultimately from hell, okay? Now, this is a really sobering thing for us to remember that Satan doesn't live in hell. A lot of times we see, see the cartoons, like, okay, Satan, your job, your gig is to run hell. That's your job, okay? Place of torment, Satan, that's your job. Hell is reserved for those who've rejected God. And while Satan has rejected God, his time of judgment has not yet come. One day he will go there, but where Satan resides, is earth here. We forget this. I forget this. It's a sobering reality that Satan dwells 
here in this earth. There's no nation, there's no culture on this planet that is not under his influence either by the lies he spawns or the evil he generates by proxy. Now, here, y'all need to hear me on this. I am not, I am not a like demon under every rock kind of guy. I'm not. I hate giving Satan any more credit than what he's due. Here's the simple fact. We do bad pretty well on our own, right? We don't need his help. He makes it difficult. He might make it challenging, but we don't need his help to do bad. We are fully broken and capable of doing bad on our own. We are fully capable of rejecting God on our own. We are fully capable of, in our pride, thinking we know what's best. We can do bad pretty much on our own, but Satan certainly does not help that, and his influence is prevalent. We need not forget that. And it's easy to forget that, especially in our culture, because we live in a naturalistic, essentialist culture. What I mean by that is we live in a culture that is very secular, that looks at the world and says, this is all there is. There's no spiritual reality. If we can't test it, if we can't verify it, if we can't see it, if we can't touch it, if we can't smell it, it does not exist. This is all there is, and this is the culture we live in. So it's really hard not to let the influences, and it's really hard not to remember that there is another world out there. The reality is there is a world we cannot see that has tremendous influence on the world we can see. We have to remember this. And this is so vital. This is so incredibly vital because here's the deal. This is critical. The culture is not the enemy. The culture is not the enemy. Satan is the enemy, okay? His influence, his lies, that's in the culture is not the enemy. The culture is the mission field. This is where we're going to unpack that a little bit more as we go along. When we talk about God's protection, I think, I started thinking of as a parent and my kids, the scariest place to be as a parent with my kids is the parking lot. Uh, yeah, I'm getting an amen. Thank you. Like, but parents with little kids, they go to the parking lot, man. It's like, okay, <sighs> guys, I know your inclination is to dart, just to dart, right? I like 75% of my kids, they're darters. They just, you know, just dart, okay? And so we get out of the car. Listen, don't go past the minivan, right? Stay close to daddy. Where daddy is, is safe. Now, parents, you know, Parking lots of dangerous places. All kinds of things can happen. You read news articles. There's lots of moving cars. Maybe not see little children in their backup cameras. Stay close to Daddy. If we want Christ's protection, we must stay close to Him. We must stay close to Him. If we want to experience God's protection, then stay close to Jesus and wear His armor. I'm going to give you some homework. Okay, you ready? Your homework. Go read Ephesians 5, 11 to 13. Clearly identifies who the enemy is and what God's answer is. Wear the full armor of God. Okay? All right, we're going to move on in our scripture passage here. We're going to continue reading in John chapter 17, verses 13 through 14. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they, talking about his disciples, may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world as I am not of the world. There's this association. Jesus is different. You are different. It's hard to think about this because no one likes to be hated. Okay? We might be. 
maybe you currently are, or maybe dealing with the difficulty of standing for Christ, but we are hated in this world because Jesus was hated. We are hated in this world because Jesus has instructed us, but Jesus has instructed us on the source of joy. That's his answer. So despite this world maybe rejecting us or treating you poorly because you associate yourself with Jesus, his instruction gives us the source of joy. This is such a big deal. We don't like to be treated this way, but when we live in a culture where the left is right and up is down and just basic realities are rejected outright, we're told don't even believe your own eyes, we will be labeled as hateful when we're just trying to be loving, when we want to rescue people, when there's a genuine care for people, we might be labeled as hateful even though we're doing everything right. And it's terrifying. I get that. But we cannot lose sight of reality that God has for us. And here's the thing. As we stand for what's right, it is more important how we stand than if we stand of all. It's more, important than, it's more important how we stand for what's right than if we stand at all. Because if you stand for what's right in a way that's uncaring or unthoughtful or unloving, you're going to do more damage than if you just kept your mouth shut. We've got to consider how we're going to take a stand. We've got to be loving. We've got to be caring in how we do it. We must love first, preach second. Love first, preach second. We do not want to be a resounding gong or symbol. Some of you are catching that reference. Our joy can only be made complete in the pursuit of Christ, not in the approval of people. Even though you might be treated like garbage, you need to look at the reality, the truth that God has given us, that you are valuable. You're immeasurably treasured by Him. You are His son or daughter. You are rescued. You are worthy of him to go to the cross. Not worthy, but worth it to him. He loves us beyond measure. He treasures you. He has a purpose for you. And so when the world treats you like garbage, remember the reality of who you are in him. And your joy will be made complete when you look into his eyes and look into his world and not into the mirror of those around you. Seeking the approval of people will leave you confused, will leave you dissatisfied. It's easy to doubt, right? They're saying I'm this hateful person, but I'm just trying to do the right thing. This is what God's Word teaches. Maybe I'm wrong. We get all twisted up because someone's treating us poorly or they're attaching a label to us that's negative. Well, maybe I have it wrong. Maybe I'm interpreting the Scripture incorrectly. No. No. Stay focused on what God has for you. Your joy will be made complete, and it will transcend how you're being treated. God has given us his word not only to instruct us how to live, but to remind us of who we are. Look into his word deeply. Let's continue reading. We're going to revisit verse 11. Look at that last part of verse 11 where he says this. Protect them by your name that you have given me, so that, so that they may be one as we are are one. A clear passage revealing the Trinity right here. He wants us to be one as the Trinity is one, this, this unity. Yet at the same time, we look at verse 16, this is what we have to deal with. They are not of the world, as I am not of the world. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself here. 
No, I'm not. I'm not getting ahead of myself here. And then look at verse uh, 21 as well. We're going to further down. Verse 21 where he says, May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. We don't belong here. We don't. But, but God will bring us together. God will unify us. We are alienated in this world, but Jesus has unified us with him and with each other. Despite the fact that we don't belong here, despite the fact that we, we may feel alienated by those around us, God has unified us to him and us with each other in a profound and deep way. Amen. This is critical for us. Now, a number of years ago, I was a teacher at a Christian school. I taught Old Testament, a two-year Old Testament program to middle school students for about five, six years. I loved it. It was great. And as I taught there for a couple of years, I realized a lot of parents fundamentally do not understand what a Christian school is for. A lot of times parents say, oh, Christian school is to, you know what? Fix my kids. <laughs> I kid you not. Fix my kids. Uh, little Johnny might be a little... You know, um, or it's you know what I want a place where there's no sin. <laughs> hey, there's no sin here, right? It's a Christian school; nothing bad happens here, right? Eh, sorry, <laughs> it's not a bubble. There's still sin here. We still have drug dogs that come and check things, okay, for accountability. Sorry, to burst your bubble on that one, okay? So I gave this seminar. So listen, as teachers, we need to understand when we talk to parents, it's not a bubble, it's half a bubble, okay? It's an umbrella. The goal of a Christian school is that students learn to view every subject and everything they learn through the lens of Christ, so they may shape and form a worldview that is honoring to God and reflects what Scripture has to teach. The goal of a Christian school is that. Now, you can't do that if you hide the truth from them, but a Christian school is meant to be an umbrella. Shield you from getting drowned by the world so you may still look at it and understand it in a context without drowning. The truth is revealed, but in a way that's helpful, in a way that gives you context, in a way that keeps you from being inundated by it, right? And so this is really key. And now I have, I've gotten ahead of myself here in my notes. Um, <laughs> talking about the bubble, but we'll skip back to these other passages here in a second. But um, we don't belong here, right? We don't belong here, but we're unified together through Him. And this is key. Now, a long time ago, this is kind of weird maybe for you to think about, but I was maybe a senior in high school, we're doing this trip. We're going to the beach. It was a seven-hour trip. And as we're going to this trip, we got bored, and we started playing Truth or Dare. Great things happen when Truth or Dare starts to happen, right? And someone dared me to convince somebody outside the bus that you're an alien. Okay. I took this challenge. I put my head out the window and convinced some random guy on the street that I was an alien by doing something incredibly silly. And right after I did that, this guy next to me, he said, listen, you understand, you could have just showed him your AR card. Yeah, your alien registration card. Oh, that would have been way easier. See, 
In Japan, I had to have an alien registration card. I had a card that identified me as, you don't belong here. You are a foreigner. In fact, the Japanese word for foreigner is gaijin, which means outsider. No one wants to feel ostracized. No one wants to feel like you don't belong somewhere. In fact, when I was five years old, I was walking down the street with my dad, and it was a four-lane road, a big road, and across the street, three stories up, a kid yelled down to me and said, gaijin da, look, foreigner. I was like, okay, sorry, just walking here. I mean, I had platinum blonde hair and blue eyes. So I kind of stuck out, okay? Yeah, I had hair. How great was that? <laughs> but all joking aside, no one wants to feel ostracized. No one wants to feel alienated. No one wants to feel like the weird one, right? When I was in sixth grade, we were home in the States, in the Cypress, Texas area, kind of north of Houston, and I went to public school the first time in my life. And I'd grown up in this boarding school where it's just like a big family, but I had no idea how to act. I didn't know, have any idea what was cool. I had no idea what to wear, nothing. And I was bullied mercilessly for it. It was a hard year. I did not feel like I belonged. And I remember the last day of school driving home on the road, it's this sigh of relief, like, it's over. But I'll tell you what, at church, Wednesday night at Juana's, Sunday mornings, I had friends. I belonged. I was loved. I was cared for. I was respected, and I felt valued. I had people that understood me, people I connected with. Here's the thing. We might be different. We might be different. We may not belong here, but we can be different together. We can be different together. We need each other. Hey, we can clap to that. Absolutely. See, Jesus wanted us to experience the perfect kind of community that he had as a trinity, to be together, to do this Christian walk thing together. We must be unified with Christ if we're going to preserve our unity as believers. We must be connected to him. So our new members class is so vital. Do you understand what it means to be connected to Christ? We must be unified together. Now, our unity is not based on uniformity of kind. Our unity is not based on uniformity of kind, but on conformity to Christ, right? We are very different. It takes all types to run church. It takes all types to be part of this rescue mission. But we all need to be in agreement on what it means to be conformed to Christ. This is key. I'll give you some more homework. Read John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, abide in Christ. What does it mean to be part of the true vine? Let's continue reading in John chapter 17, verses 16 through 19. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so they may also be sanctified by the truth. You see this word sanctified repeated here. The word sanctify means to be set apart, to be devoted to God. See, we are inundated by the world. I I had that reference to being in a Christian school. We want to protect our kids. We want to protect each other from being drowning by the influences of the world, right? Whatever way you do that, if I'm teaching at home, whatever it be, we want to 
have proper instruction on what it means not to be inundated by the world, but Jesus has sanctified us for a purpose. We have a purpose. So despite the overwhelming influences we have, Jesus has set us apart for a particular purpose. And sanctified means to be devoted to God, to be set apart. It has connotations of holiness. Jesus died so that a certain truth might set us free. We can be saved by grace through faith. That is a truth that sanctifies us, that sets us apart when you accept that reality. Jesus died so this truth can set us free. We are saved by grace through faith alone. We've been set apart, and it's truth that distinguishes us. And Jesus also says he sanctifies himself, and that it was it was really for him to complete the cross. He knows, I have a job to do. I have set myself apart to go finish the work of the cross, to go to the cross and die for my disciples, die for the world. He set himself apart to do this for us. Jesus set himself apart to finish the work of the cross so we might be set free to be on mission. He died so his work might continue. We get to be a part of that, and that is a fantastic and amazing thing. Now, it's really hard, it's really hard to be overwhelmed by the world, to be inundated by the world when we're too busy serving God, when we're too busy loving other people, when we're really caught up in the mission that God has for us. It's hard to be overwhelmed by the world when we're really on mission. We are sanctified set apart for a purpose, and that is to reach a dying world that is desperately, desperately needing the love and truth of Christ. That is what we are set apart for. That is what Christ died for. That is the truth that sets us apart, that we are saved by grace, and we've been rescued by Him, and we have now been commissioned to rescue other people. That is our mission. And we can all be a part of that in different and unique ways that God has gifted you to do this. Remember, the culture is not the enemy because the culture is made of people, people that desperately need Jesus. And our mission is to reach and love people. Let us not forget that. I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to give us a little practical thoughts before we leave. How do we live in a world but not of it? That's the question we've been asking this morning. How do we live in a world but not of it? There's a few tensions or complementing ideas I want to kind of give you. The first one is this. Be a light in a dark place when you have support. But escape the darkness when you are alone. The temptations of this world are real. Be a light in a dark place. Shine for Jesus in your workplace. Shine for Jesus in your school. Shine for Jesus when you go get a cup of coffee or whatever it is that you have, shine for Jesus, but make sure you have support. Don't be an island. Don't be a lone ranger. And if you find yourself in a compromising position, get out of there. Okay, the Joseph principle, when he was tempted by Potiphar, he fled. Don't stick around. No, sir. The world is tempting. It has many things that will draw us away from Christ. That is the reality. Those are the lies that Satan has for us. No one will know. This will really make you happy. This is really satisfying. Don't believe it. Flee the darkness. We need to do this together. Be a light in a dark place and have support. It's the reason why Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, right? The trial run to be disciples to spread his word. 
Um, he sent them out two by two, not by themselves. Second, you do not belong here, but you're called to minister here. You don't belong. It's okay. Let's be different together. But we're called to minister, every single one of us, in different ways. Lastly, remember, earth is occupied territory. It is. But Jesus has promised victory. And that victory is not winning the culture wars, okay? That victory is victory over sin. That victory is making all things right again when Jesus does come back one day. That victory is reaching lost people. That victory is lives changed. That victory is seeing a broken world come to understand the healing that Christ has to offer us. That victory is uh, not of this world. It is wonderful. It is beautiful. And you get to be a part of that. You get to be part of God's rescue mission because you were rescued as well. Jesus has promised us victory. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we confess to you we forget so easily the reality that you're fully aware of. God, I pray you open our eyes to the needs of this broken world. I pray you open our eyes to what you want for us. I pray that you show us opportunities where we can make a difference, shows opportunities where we can love people. And for sitting here this morning and we're resonating with the book of Judges and go, man, that sin cycle, that is me. I'm caught in habitual sin. I feel stuck. I'm not experiencing the victory of Christ. I'm not experiencing the healing he has to offer that he died for on the cross for me. I want that desperately. Come close to Christ. Draw near to him. Find community here. Find accountability here. Find encouragement here. Come to the front. Let us pray with you. Let us get you plugged in. Maybe you're scared to open your mouth. Maybe you're scared to say what's right because you're so afraid you're going to be ostracized. You're so afraid that you're going to be rejected by those around you. Ask God for boldness. Ask God for courageous thinking and the right words to say, the loving words to say, the caring words to say, the thoughtful words to say. God, give us these things. Give us discernment how to navigate this minefield and this mission you have called us to. So, and you're sitting in a chair this morning, ask God to stir in your soul. How can I be on mission? How can I be in this world but still faithful to you and what you have called me to? We pray this in your name.